myself shall be humble. <laughs> well, it's a great blessing to be here with you. Again, it's been a long time in my mind, but uh, I always feel sorry for the folks from Kirksville that happen to be at a place where I'm speaking after they're looking forward to hearing Clint speak. But uh, we trust the Lord's providence in that, that He knows. I was thinking as uh, Zach was speaking um, about an anecdote I heard. I think it was Prime Minister Disraeli uh, in England years ago. He got up and gave an extemporaneous speech. And... um, one of the uh, ladies there in the evening at some social gathering, she said, I want, I want to tell you how much that extemporaneous speech meant to me. She said, I've been thinking about it all afternoon. And he said, lady, I've been thinking about that speech for 20 years. And Zach, uh, he said, over the last few months or last few years even, that these things have been distilling. Those are the things that we ought to really listen to, shouldn't we? Um, Perplexed, but not despairing, not cast down. That's something that distills on somebody's soul for a period of months and years. And then it's finally shared. Those are the things that um, we can latch on to. Well, let's open our Bibles. And let's let's stand as we read John John 11 and verse 33 When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And so the Jews were saying, Behold how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of him who was blind have kept this man also from dying? Jesus, therefore, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you, If you believe, you will see the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask You for the quickening power and help of Your Spirit today. We pray for a spirit of faith and power and love and of a sound mind. We ask that You'd scatter Your enemies. We ask that You'd cleanse us from every sin. We ask that You'd renew our hearts and minds at this time. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Many years ago, there was a movie about the life of Christ called The Greatest Story Ever Told. And I'm sure it probably wasn't a very good movie. I can't remember any of it. But but one thing that does come across from that title, it brings out something wonderful about Christianity. And that is, Christianity is not a philosophy. It's not a, a system of... Uh, timeless, eternal principles. You know, Buddhism, for example, Buddha supposedly was sitting out under a tree and he was enlightened to this principle that suffering is caused by desire. And then everything's worked out from that principle. You know, you've, you've got to be rid of your desires and then you'll be rid of your suffering and so on. That's not the way Christianity is. Christianity was not somebody named Paul or somebody named Peter giving us their philosophy of life or some truth that they had supposedly seen. What it is, it's them telling about something they saw happen and how much more wonderful that is. I don't have to rely on Paul's great intellect or Peter or any of those. What we have seen and heard, that's what we declare to you. So it's the greatest story ever told. These men running to tell. This is what we saw. This is what he said. We didn't understand it at the time, but later we looked back and we saw what he meant when he said this. And it's so wonderful to think of um, following a God and a religion that has been rooted in history, revealed in history, that God has come into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And these men who were simple fishermen, who knew nothing, who could have invented nothing on their own. I mean, do you really think that Peter and and John and those men were sufficient to invent Jesus? There was no way. They didn't understand what He was saying most of the time. But they reported what they had seen and heard. And so we come in contact with a God who's come into history, a living God who's made Himself known to us in history, who came down here and spoke words that no one else ever spoke and who did deeds that no one else has ever done. God came and lived among us as a man. And I've read this wonderful passage here in John 11 as sort of an introduction for what I'd like to speak on today. I'd like to talk to you about the emotions of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ had emotions and He had deep emotions. And this passage alone ought to remove any doubts that we might have about that. Notice in verse 33, He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And in verse 35, Jesus wept. And verse 38, Jesus therefore again being deeply moved within. The Lord Jesus Christ, although He was God, dwelling in human flesh, He was not some austere, 
uh, emotionless deity walking around here in a human skin. He felt, and he felt deeply. <clears throat> the writer to the Hebrews puts it like this. He says he could be touched. The King James says he could be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, our weaknesses. He could be touched with the way you feel. And the uh, New American Standard says he sympathize. He could sympathize, and this, you know that's a compound word. Sin or sympathy. Sim means comes from the word some or together in the Greek, and then pathos, you know, uh, sickness or weakness or or feeling, emotion. Um, so <clears throat> the two words sim- sympathy. We have we use this all the time. We have symphony, that's phony, that's sounds that are put together in a symphony. You have pathetic, you know, when you think of sympathy, you think of something that is pathetic, feeling or suffering, pathology. So sympathy, he could sympathize, he could he could feel our pain with us. He could feel our feelings. He could suffer with us and uh, enter into our weaknesses. So he was able to feel things, beloved, and he's able to sympathize. In fact, his emotions were probably greater in certain situations than those of which any other human being is capable. Now, this is something. Not only could he feel, not only was he not just walking around, you know, aloof from everything, but he could feel more than we can feel. Because He of all people was the most alive. We walk around in the stupor a lot of the time and don't feel things the way we ought to feel those things. But He could feel. Um, he felt the feel. He felt feelings that we ought to feel. And so, just think of what it would be like, like this morning... Chris talked about the beauty of creation. Think what it would be like to get up in the morning and look at the sun come up as a perfect man. Without any guilt, any traces of sin, you've never sinned. Without any unbelief in your heart, you're looking at the sun come up in perfect communion with God. Think of the joy of that. And the reality that God's real and that He's your Father. So what he felt when he saw the sun come up I mean, like I said, he he felt more emotion in many situations than what we feel. Um, when you think of what he when he saw human suffering, when he saw injustice, what did he feel as a perfect man when he saw injustice or human depravity, or when he saw God's name dishonored and blasphemed? So he had this intense feelings, but yet it was all in perfect balance. He wasn't emotional, quote-unquote, in the bad sense of the word. And you have the sense that he's always perfectly balanced. Uh, He was sometimes angry. He was sometimes full of joy. He was sometimes deeply grieved. He was sometimes full of wonder. And sometimes he wept. But all of these emotions were perfect responses of a perfect man in the situation where he was. He responded just the way we ought to respond in every situation in which he found himself. He was a man. His emotions tell us what we should feel. 
But Jesus was also God. Now this is something. Jesus' emotions tell us what God would feel if He was a man. Because He is God as a man. Think of it. Think of this, when you see the Lord Jesus responding to situations, it's telling you what God would feel if He was down in that situation as a man, because He is God as a man. And so there are two things that I hope um, this message will accomplish this morning. First of all, I hope it will give us some comfort and hope as we encounter once again the glorious character of the Lord Jesus Christ, His perfect responses in every situation. And then secondly, I hope that it will help us to examine our own emotions in the light of His. Do I get angry about the things that He got angry about? Do I get angry over some personal offense instead? Do I weep over the things that made Jesus weep? Or do I weep because of self-pity and unbelief? Do I rejoice in the things that made Jesus rejoice? Or do I rejoice when I ought to weep? Uh, Our friend Baylor there in Iowa used to say to us college guys, he said, oftentimes we stay awake worrying about things that we ought to just go to sleep put it in God's hands. And other times we go to sleep at times when we ought to stay awake, being burdened. It has to do with with entering into the mind of the Lord. And so, um, what we see here, and then this morning I, just, I want to look at seven of these, of the Lord's emotions. And these are all emotions of the Lord Jesus that are recorded for us in Scripture. The Uh, The Holy Spirit saw fit that the disciples would remember how He responded in a certain situation. And not only tells His emotion, but it tells what, what it was that brought it forth. In other words, God is saying to us, now in this kind of situation, this is the perfect response of a perfect man. And we can test ourselves by that. And also, like I said, we can be greatly encouraged to think of the way He is, just His person. And so, the first one is compassion. This is a major theme in the Gospels, the compassion of the Lord Jesus. I want to read one passage if you want to turn to it, Luke 7. And beginning at verse 11... It came about soon afterwards that he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large multitude. Now as he approached the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. Now notice the only son of his mother, she was a widow, and the people were walking with her. When the Lord saw her, not the dead man, when He saw her, He felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And He came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt, and He said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. 
See, it all centers around the mother. This woman who didn't have any... What is this? It's compassion. And I like this story so much because she wasn't asking anything. You have times where there'd be a leper or somebody that's coming, Lord, have mercy on me, and he would have compassion. But here's just a woman walking along in a funeral procession, and he has compassion. He initiates it. And he has compassion on her, totally unexpected. The Good Samaritan, you know, Jesus told that story. A certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon this man in the ditch, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him. The man wasn't asking for anything. Beloved, a lot of times when we're coming to God, we're His children, we're asking for mercy. How much more will He have compassion on us? And we ought to think about this. I am coming to a compassionate Lord. who I'm His child. It's like that woman who's praying for her daughter. Lord, have mercy on me. My daughter is grievously vexed with a demon. And so, just to have this in mind, His compassion... Listen to these verses. Now, every one of these, these are not parallel passages. These are all separate incidents. Listen to them. And moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed Him. And moved with compassion, He stretched out His hand and touched Him and said to Him, I am willing, be cleansed. And seeing the multitudes, He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. And when he went ashore, he saw a great multitude and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. And Jesus called his disciples to him. And I said, these are not parallel passages. These are over and over. He called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the multitude because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not wish to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. And he got up and came to his father, and while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Beloved, we're dealing with a compassionate Savior. And whenever we've got these burdens, these agonies in our hearts, Whatever it is, you know, it says back there in the Old Testament that every man knows the plague and the anguish of his own heart. Nobody else knows it. But the Lord knows it. And we're not coming to someone who's cold and indifferent. We're coming to someone who is noted for his compassionate nature. And it's emphasized over and over. And I think this... uh, passage that I started with in John 11 actually fits under the same category of compassion. You know, Jesus wept there, actually wept, one of two places. The other one was when He sees Jerusalem and He realizes the glory that it ought to be to God and how they've rejected Him and rejected God's will for them. Uh, He wept there too when when He rounded the corner and saw Jerusalem. But here's the other place. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. And the thing that we got to realize is he wasn't, they said, behold how he loved him. Well, that's not why he was weeping, because he knew he was going to raise him from the dead. He's weeping because he feels the misery of fallen humanity. I mean, these sisters weeping. 
and the pain and the anguish of life. And if we are indifferent to that, there's something wrong with us. If you go into a hospital and you don't feel something of the anguish of, of humanity, and even though it's a result of sin, it's a result of the fall, um, there ought to be compassion in our hearts. And that's what Jesus had. The pitiful condition of humanity is a result of sin. Well, we have a compassionate Savior. He can be touched with the feeling of our infirmity. So, do I have compassion? Secondly, zeal. Second emotion, zeal. John 2. We might want to... If you're following along in your Bible, we can turn to this. John 2. In verse 13, And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And He found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated. Now, they were selling all these things for the purpose of sacrifices, so you could justify it somewhat. But apparently, it had become an unclean thing. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers. I've always marveled at that. You think of a big table full of coins and you just flip them on the floor. You think of what that would have been like. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for thy house will consume me. I think they remembered later. It says, uh, uh, verse 22, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. <clears throat> zeal is zeal and emotion. Webster's New World Dictionary says this for zeal. Intense enthusiasm, ardor, or fervor. Intense ardor. For what did the Lord Jesus feel intense ardor and devotion? Well, God's house. And he felt it about God's house because it was associated with God's honor and God's name. Uh, it's very significant that the word zealous or zeal is closely related to the word jealous. And uh, the fact is that under the word jealous in the dictionary, the first thing that my dictionary said was see zeal. So, and even more important than that, in both the Old Testament and the New, it's the very same word that's translated jealous or zealous depending on the context. That's amazing. Whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, sometimes it's a bad thing. Other times, it's a good thing to be zealous or jealous. And so, it just depends on the context. So, what was happening here in John 2 
was that the Lord was so full of love for His Father and for the honor of His Father and so full of reverence for His Father that He could not bear to see God's house dishonored the way it was dishonored. And it angered Him. It caused Him to burn with zeal and with intense ardor and fervor for God's honor. And this is quite a thing. It was ultimately the zeal of the Lord Jesus Christ that for God and for truth and for His honor that caused Him to be crucified. Zeal consumed Him. Now think of this. It wasn't His compassion that consumed Christ. They didn't kill Him because He went around healing and helping people. But the fact that He had such burning zeal for God and His glory caused eventually consumed Him. It eventually caused them to kill Him. Isn't that something? And so we could ask the question, do I, have I, do I feel the zeal? And I find in my own life a lot of times there's something wrong. There's just not enough real intense concern about the glory of God that it would cause me to be so uh, unable to bear with God's name being trampled that I have to speak up. I remember um, um, years ago when when Bob and I had just graduated from college, Bob Jennings, uh, he, had, he had just been converted. He was working for DeKalb. And uh, uh, as a new Christian, they, they came in there, a bunch of men, uh, having some special meeting. And they all sat down and started eating their food. And Bob is a new Christian. He couldn't stand that. They didn't thank God for the food. And so he just got up in the midst of the whole group and said, Men, let's pray and thank God for our food. What's that? It's zeal. Because of what? Because of being intensely burning with a desire that God be honored and be glorified. Well, the Lord Jesus, think of this. He's, God gives us His response and He gives us a situation so that we'll be able to see what we ought to feel. And, and it's right that there would be feelings come up in us that we'd burn with desire for God to be glorified and not to be dishonored. And think of this. He's still, the Lord Jesus is still full of zeal for God's honor. I think of Prim Pradhan there in Nepal. Uh, there was a village where uh, one young couple had become Christians. And everybody else was Hindu, and that the son, the young son of that couple, had died. And Prim said that he came to God and poured out his heart, Oh God, your name is at stake. Your name is at stake. And I won't tell the whole story here, but God intervened in a powerful way. Why? Because zeal. He still Jesus still has zeal for his father's glory, and God has zeal. For His Father's glory. So we're on good ground anytime we can say, Lord, Your name is at stake in this. Alright, number three. Now think of how different these emotions are. Here we got, here's compassion. Just a gentle, He's just full of love. Here's this woman whose son has died and He just comes out of Him when He sees her. Just feels compassion for her. She's not asking. She's not expecting. It's too late for anything to be done. He just feels compassion. 
and raises this boy up and gives him back to, to his mother. But in this other situation, he's terrifying. He's making a whip and driving out the oxen and turning over tables. Zeal coming out of it. Per, you see the perfect uh, response in every situation. Well, here's another one. Joy. Luke chapter 10. And again, God is careful to tell us the situation. Luke chapter 10, 21 and 22. Verse 21 of Luke 10, At that very time He rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise Thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that that is hide these things from the wise and intelligent and didst reveal them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was well pleasing in thy sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Great joy. We're told in a parable uh, that Jesus gave, another example where it says that the, the good shepherd, when he finds that sheep that was lost, he rejoices greatly. Now think of that in light of your own conversion. There's rejoicing. He rejoices. Um, when he finds one, every time, every time one person is converted, he's rejoicing that he found that sheep. The Lord is rejoicing. But here it's, here's a specific, not a parable, but a specific incident in his life where it says he rejoiced greatly. Well, what was he rejoicing about? Well, he's rejoicing in the sovereign good pleasure of God. He says, he says, yes, Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in Your sight. All things have been handed over to Me by My Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. And He to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. In other words, he's, He's praising God that salvation doesn't depend on man. It depends on the good pleasure of God just sovereignly bestowing. Have you ever just been, just praised God that He is sovereign? That it's not man that makes it. I mean, when you first begin to realize God chooses and no one will choose Him. And He sovereignly bestows mercy on whom He will have mercy. And Jesus, just moved by the Holy Spirit, He just starts praising God greatly. I'm so thankful that you determine all these things. Have you ever felt that from the bottom of your heart? You're thankful that God's in control. You're thankful that it's not man calling the shots and God wringing His hands waiting for man to do something so He can know what He can do. You know, poor God. Jesus is outside the door. There's no knob on the outside. He's out in the cold. Have mercy on Him and let Him come into your life. That's not the biblical view of God or of Christ. I remember one time years ago, uh, right after I got out of college, I was struggling so bad, I didn't know if I was going to make it in the Christian life. And I remember the thought came in my mind, you know what, 
God is going to save all of His people. I may not be one of them, but they're all going to be saved. And it was just such a joy to think. Nothing can stop God from saving His people. And what's Jesus say? Fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's, he's happy about giving you the kingdom. And so what an encouragement to us. But he's rejoicing, he's rejoicing in the sovereign will of God and his plan of salvation. But he's rejoicing in more than that. He's rejoicing that God has set things up in such a way that it's the weak and the base and the contemptible that in general God chooses. He doesn't choose the high and the mighty. And uh, let me just read this to you in 1 Corinthians. Paul says, he says, Consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world, the babes. You know, Jesus is rejoicing. I'm thankful you've revealed this to babes. He's chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, that He might nullify the things that that are. That no man should boast before God. I mean, doesn't it just make you want to rejoice when you see God save? Some, like some of these testimonies of guys saved in prison recently. What an encouragement. It's like God has chosen. That's the way He set it up. He's chosen the base thing. Bok Singh told a story of a fellow that God used greatly there in India. He said this man, um, he was, he was one of these, one of these foolish and base and weak things in the eyes of the world. He said the man came to him and said uh, he wanted to get a light bulb so he could have light in his hut. And a little bit later he came back and he said the light bulb doesn't work. And Boxing tried it and it did work. And so he said, no, he said it doesn't work. So he went with him back to his hut and he had a rope tied to the ceiling and hung the light bulb by a rope. <laughs> so that's God's using the weak and the foolish things of the world to confound the mighty. Because that guy knew the living God and he had salvation and he knew the reason for living where you can listen to these brilliant scientists who say that the world was a fluctuation of nothing. Now, the Lord, that caused the Lord, prompted by the Holy Spirit, this idea that God's in control and that He chooses nobodies just filled Him with joy. Rejoice greatly at that. We ought to rejoice greatly at that. I mean, you ever feel like a nobody? You think, thank God, that's who He's chosen. He's chosen. He's chosen. All right, so, so in some situations, joy. In some situations, burning zeal. In some situations, compassion. How about this? Anger. Mark 3. Verse 1, And he entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. 
And they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath in order that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Rise and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately began taking counsel with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Isn't that amazing? Now, there is such a thing as righteous anger. Almost all of the anger that you and I have ever seen is not in that category. The wrath of man, the Bible says, the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. But there is such a thing as righteous anger. And um, we see it here. So it's really important to know what is it that led to this righteous anger. Um, And the answer is a situation where men were indifferent to human suffering because of their supposed zeal for God and religious rules and regulations. A situation where men are indifferent to the misery of some fellow person, some fellow human being, because of their religious rules. That made him angry. That's something. Now we see that in the Gospels. It comes up a lot, but think of it. Here's Judas. He comes back in there. Think of this this poor, miserable man. He comes back into the temple and he and he throws that money in there. He says, I've sinned. I've betrayed innocent blood. Now he's an inch away from committing suicide. I've sinned. I've committed I, I've 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 betrayed innocent blood. And he throws this money back in and he says, What is that to us? You see about that. And he goes out and kills himself. He's an inch away from suicide. They could care less about his soul or about his life. But here's what they do. They gave the money and they said, we can't, we can't put that in the treasury because that would, this is blood money. You know, that he got this from, from betraying Christ. We don't want to do that. That would be breaking the law. That'd be going against what the Bible says. You see that? God hates that where we have our rules and our regulations and things that, that so affect us that we can't feel compassion for somebody that's in a desperate situation. I mean, they, could, they didn't care about Judas, but they did care about not using that money in a way that was unlawful. And that's why it comes up, I think, isn't it? Three, I believe it's three times on different occasions it's quoted. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. And it's all in the context of them doing all these meticulous rules and not having compassion on anybody. And so here was a case where they did not have, these men did not have compassion because of their religious scruples. And that's when Jesus was angry. Anger on behalf of someone else's misery and their lack of care. And it says he looked, think of what this was like. He looked around at them. 
He just looked at their faces. They're standing there. They don't care. They're watching to see if he'll heal so that they can try to kill him. And this man who's suffering with a withered hand, they don't care at all about him. That caused Jesus to be angry. Well, aren't these amazing? Each one's so different. All right, here's another one. This one is just unbelievable. He feel, Jesus felt at times a sense of wonder and awe. You know when you see something that, like, like when Peter saw that miraculous catch of fish, and he said, depart from me from a sinful man, he saw some glimpse of something big. I mean, it's causing him to marvel and wonder. Well, let's look at this. Mark 6, first of all. Verses 1 to 6. And he went out from there, and he came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him, and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They stumbled over him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands upon a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. It's the same word used when, here's an example in another passage. The men marveled, saying, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? They're out there on the ship. He just gets up and says, Be still, and the winds. And it says they they marveled, they wondered. Now I can understand that for those guys, but here it says Jesus marveled. He just feel it was like whoa. He saw something. And and the thing that makes this so incredible is the Bible says he knew the hearts of all men. He knew how bad men were. And yet there were still things that he ran into that were so bad that it was like a revelation to him. How could the human heart be this bad? And beloved, that's what that'll happen to us if we live long enough. We'll be in situations. I I I felt it a little bit standing over there in Cambodia before those mountains of skulls that Pol Pot had had initiated. All those people, the killing fields are in Dachau. Those concentration camps were. Uh, the furnaces are that they shovel people in and burn them up. Tens of thousands and millions of people. wasn't very long ago. But it comes closer to home, doesn't it? God allows us to see things. Well, he may allow us to see things in our own children or in our own loved ones where you think, Lord, I... I believe in depravity. I don't need to see anymore. I don't need to believe this anymore. Surely, can the human heart be this bad? He marveled. He marveled. That's amazing. Because he knew all men. He already knew how bad men were. 
But there were things that he encountered that just caused him to marvel. It's like, this is incredible. But there's another side to this. In Luke 7, we're still talking about marveling and wondering and a sense of awe. In Luke 7, the story of the synagogue official, it says in verse 6, Jesus started on His way with them, and when He was already not far from the house, I'm sorry, the centurion, uh, the centurion sent friends saying to Him, Lord, do not trouble Yourself further, for I am not fit for You to come under My roof. For this reason I did not even consider Myself worthy to come to You, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For indeed, I am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, He marveled at him. He wondered. He was filled with awe and amazement. He marveled at him and turned and said to the multitude that was following Him, I say to you that not even in Israel... Have I found such great faith? So think of this. The one group had so much unbelief that he it caused him to marvel. But here's a guy, and I think it's in contrast to these others. They were Jews. They had heard so much. And this guy's a Roman centurion. You know the life of a Roman centurion would have been a rough... I mean, the guy was used to bad stuff. And here he is. I mean, he had a hundred men under him. Just being a Roman soldier would not have been a nice place to be a Christian. But he had a hundred men under him. And he has faith in the Jewish Messiah. And it is such a contrast with these Jews that it causes Jesus to marvel. What would it be like if we could have so much faith that the Lord would marvel at our faith. I mean, wouldn't that be fantastic? If He'd say, whoa, this guy is really believing me in this situation. I'm afraid a lot of times it's been the other way for me. But He marveled. It was one of His emotions. And it was. we know that this was a perfect response, wasn't it? And there are times when we ought to marvel, I mean, commend somebody. When they're, when they're walking with God in spite of terrible circumstances. Number six, these will be briefer, I've just got a couple more. Love, <clears throat> specifically. Mark 10. Twenty-one. This was the rich young ruler. And it says, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words, his face fell and he went away grieved for he was one who owned much property. I think this is a different category than compassion because this wasn't like a leper or somebody that's in a bad state that needs compassion, but it's somebody that's um, 
full of strength and uh, has all these possessions. He's rich. And Jesus, looking at him, felt a love for him. And there's times when, when we, you know, the person does not give any outward evidences of needing compassion, but yet you still, there you feel a love for them because you see that, that they're still slaves. They're enslaved. And he felt a love for him and he told him the hardest things that he could have told him, the hardest things for him to hear. And that's the way it ought to be whenever we have hard things to say to someone. You remember um, uh, Samuel had to go and deliver a hard message to Saul and he stayed up all night crying out and praying for Saul. He, he loved him. And so he was the perfect guy to give the message to him. Um, I've seen times, on one, one time a situation several years ago, um, there was a woman in the church that I was thinking, what? What do I? What can I say to her? You know what? I couldn't figure it out. And uh, I think I was maybe praying for her at the time, but I was just filled with love for that person, and immediately I knew what to say. You know, it's just like, and this is what Jesus felt a love. He felt a love for this guy, and he said, "I know the perfect thing to say to him," and he tells him the hardest thing he could have said. And sometimes it goes the other way. I remember uh, I was supposed to have some big meeting. Um, I think maybe Dick and I both were supposed to meet with somebody. And uh, I just took a, a day out to fast and pray beforehand. I remember I thought about, well, when we get together, I'm going to say this, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say that. And I took a day out to fast and pray, and it was amazing how many things I didn't, I didn't say when I got into that meeting. Because when you're filled with love, there's there's times when you say less. Here Jesus was filled with love. He said more. He said what He needed to hear. Last one, Matthew 26. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Grief. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but, but as Thou wilt. Now, why, why was Jesus deeply grieved? Well, because He was about to drink the cup of God's wrath for us. And we have things that we are called to do that are, that are that grieve, that we don't want to do. But as a Christian, if you're going to follow the Lord, you've got to do this, even though it is grieving. And um, we have crosses. In fact, Jesus Himself said this, take up your cross and follow Me. But the thing we need to remember, though, is that this cross was unique. It was something... 
for any of us to have been under this burden would have destroyed it would have destroyed the holiest archangel, the highest archangel. So this cross was unique, and he as as God the Son is shrinking back and feeling deep grief to the point of death, just thinking about what's ahead. And so he felt grief. He felt this intense grief. He was going to be he was going to have the Father pour out his wrath upon him and his face be turned away from him. And he feels grief. Why? So that we would never have to feel that kind of grief. We feel some grief, but not that kind of grief. And so the Lord did that on our behalf. Look and see if there be any sorrow, any grief like unto his sorrow. That There isn't any. <clears throat> well, it's amazing, isn't it? How much that we learn about the emotional life of the Lord. And there's so much, and we can't do these things. We can't feel the way we ought to feel unless we have the Lord's help. That's the only way. We can't do it by trying. I remember one morning um, years ago, I was sitting out in our van having a quiet time there with the Lord, and, and he, he drew near in measure, and I felt reality, and the reality that God's real, and this is all true. And immediately, I, I thought of my neighbor who was sitting out on his front porch and had a desire within to go talk to him about the Lord. Well, isn't that, that's so much different, isn't it, than feeling this obligation, you know, I need to get this out of the way and I get this over with and talk to them. And it's a real nervous thing and you're, it's totally different. And we just can't do these things by directly trying to do them. Say, well, I'm going to try to have zeal like Christ had. That won't work, will it? But but we can ask the Lord to increase our love for Him and our love for our fellow man and ask Him to change us and ask Him to give us the right responses in different situations. Feel what we ought to feel. Amen.